So let's talk a little bit more about approaching the doctrine of the Trinity now as we look at Scripture. And of course, in our, in our time together, uh, these major sessions with Afshin last night, the authority, and we relate that especially to God the Father, though I think the Son and the Spirit share authority, but they exercise it differently. They too are God, but they relate to one another in exceedingly authentic and personal ways. And in the presence of the Son, all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, uh, and we have in him been made complete, Colossians 2.9. And now, as in the last hour, the power of the Holy Spirit... All of this has, has come in, but you're seeing now a typical Trinitarian symbol. You'll see that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Distinction of persons, oneness of essence. So we've seen that as the symbol, the Father is God, this is the Athanasian Creed, by the way, the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. So I think it'd be very fruitful in our few minutes right now together to then talk about the intra-Trinitarian relationships. Here's where it begins to come alive for me. As I talked about being a person, how do we understand God as person? Now, we went through a little bit, but not too much, evidences of the Trinity in the Old Testament. There's probably more than you think. It seems sometimes, at least, let us create man in our own image. Uh, they've become as, like one of us. Uh, uh, let us, uh, you know, destroy in Babel or with the tree, eating of the tree. There are some of those uh, languages. Even more so, you see sometimes God speaking in the first person shifts to the second or third. There's a lot in the Old Testament. The divine agents, the angel of the Lord, the wisdom of God, the, the word of God the Messiah as God, as we, saw, as we saw last night and this morning. So there's quite a bit there. Again, Trinity is the, is the bedrock. It is, the, it is that, utter, that under stratum that is not evident to those in the Old Testament, but becomes alive and unfolds as we come to the New Testament and look back. So our Savior in Luke 24 gives us new glasses. All the scriptures speak of me. Jesus says, and uh, we, we now have a new way of understanding Old Testament. Also, as we talk about Trinity in the Bible, we recognize that almost every book of the New Testament speaks of God, usually denoting the Father, uh, the Son, Christ, a lot of different languages used, Jesus, Spirit in some formulation as well, and they're not always in the same order, but it is quite remarkable, even in little books like Jude or some books like Hebrews that others had said, scholars, that there's no evidence of the Trinity there. But the more we look, the more we see. And as I've mentioned, there are at least 134 New Testament passages, whole passages, that speak of the Trinity. Uh, and when we carve it into verses, at least 220 that include all three, and at least 3,000 that include mention of at least two of the three persons of the Godhead. That is, we read through this, and we rarely think Trinity, and yet there it is right in front of us, and it often doesn't dawn on us, wow, that's putting it all together, and I didn't even see it. So it's pretty exciting when you have Trinitarian glasses now, all the more Nicene glasses, where you can look back at Scripture and say, I get it, I see it now. And so 
Let me give you at least a few parts of it all. Let's look at the Gospel of John and how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to one another in the Gospel of John. I th- this is just delightful for me, and I want to take you there. First of all, the Son and the Spirit were with God. Obviously, the Spirit sent forth from God uh, with the Son, but right from the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word was God, but the Word, pros, approximate or, or really in front of an intimate way, the Word, the Logos, was with God, meaning there the Father, even as He is all that the Father is. And as we continue on in that prologue, again, we've seen this, but the only begotten God, or the one and only God, at the Father's side has made Him known. What amazing language, but we're talking about the Son exegeting the Father in our language as human beings, making it clear He's become as we are. We're beginning to understand Him. So in conspicuously human terms, Jesus is said to see the Father and to hear the Father and then to repeat what He says and to do what the Father does. That's what good sons do. They imitate their fathers, and Jesus is bringing that to us. But notice what that says about being persons. And of course, the Spirit speaks and tells what He hears and receives of the Son and the Father. You start putting all this together, and it's, it's beautiful. Whatever seeing, hearing, and being taught signify in the Trinity, the words convey the genuine personhood of each divine member and the intimate, transparent relationships each enjoys with the other. Isn't that cool? Anybody with me out there? I know the sandwich was big, but uh, it, this is... They were with God. Not only that, secondly, they know and testify of one another. Both the Spirit and the Son know the Father. Only the Son knows the Father, we, we read sometimes as Jesus speaks, and are known by the Father. Plenty of passages... But each of the divine persons has this infinitely deep knowledge. They're of the same essence of one another. And so we see the Son testifying, or the Father testifying of the Son at the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him, Peter. And on from there, even in John 12, the Father speaks from heaven and, and everyone hears it. And Jesus, uh, in a sense, says, thank you, Father. It really wasn't for me, it was for them, but what an encouragement. The Son testifies of the Father, of course, constantly as we look at this. And the Son really, in a way, in a new way, introduces the Spirit. I mean, everybody knew about the Spirit of God, but now the Spirit who is with the disciples will be in the disciples. He tells tells us about this comforter, advocate, counselor, parakletos, like himself. And, of course, the Spirit testifies of the Son. Well, all of this becomes pretty evident, reading through the Gospel of John and elsewhere as well. The Godhead reveals itself in explicit community. I want to be careful there because we're not talking tritheism. But each person is of infinite worth in fellowship with the others. Third, each member of the Godhead freely chooses in relation to the other. Now, in this, I'm pushing the edges a little bit. But we might kind of think, when we think about God, and and of course, in the economic trinity, God revealed in creation, it's rather easy to think that, well, wow, the Holy Spirit got the short straw, so he's kind of stuck glorifying the others. Bummer. 
and the, and the son, he has to die on the cross. Quite the contrary. We find that each member of the Godhead, well, they're not automatically subordinate. They are doing what they love to do. The New Testament indicates a, I want to be careful here, free volitional submission. Now, there is the one will of God, the one mind of God, but there are three also functioning there in that mystery we call the Trinity. One will, three wills. One mind, three minds. The Father is always at work, Jesus says, and I too am working. By the way, they, they wanted to kill him then. They said, what, you a man? Make yourself out to be God. Chapter 5, verse 21, a little bit later. Even so, the Son gives life to whomever he's pleased to give it. You see a lot of that language on the part of the Son. Every member of the Godhead is seen in acts of self-giving. So the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. You might remember last, or this morning speaking of the Father, or maybe, I don't know when it was now, but the Father as the judge, yet he is the judge behind the judge. Christ will met out that judgment in the world. The Father's entrusted all judgment to the Son. Yet the Son prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's the text I really like. Look at this. The reason my Father loves me a lot of other reasons are in there, surely. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and to an authority to take it up again. Sure sounds like, as we look at Trinity and the three persons, each does what they do authentically to what they really are. There is a depth in God. No one got the short stick. Each expresses who they are as God in different ways. And the Spirit, we think of Him, He both takes from the Son and the Father and gives that glory and honor to the Son and the Father. There is this relationality. So the functional order of the Godhead is not violated. There is an asymmetry in the way they work into our creation. Yet their mutual relations are entirely authentic. I'm tempted to use the word free in self-expression while sharing the perfect divine nature of which nothing is greater. This would never imply that one member of the Trinity is going to break off and become his own boss. All of them are absolute perfection of which, as Anselm said, there's nothing greater. There's no reason ever, ever to do a mutiny, but the essence and the oneness of God is far more far more than we can conceive. There is a oneness to God that is also in the threeness. And that's important to remember, but, but each member of the Godhead does what they do as revelation and expression of who they are. Fourth, self-rendering love. Because as we read the scriptures, the Father and the Son love each other. And of course, agape love is that especially for another. It is the, the generosity, the self-giving, even the self-sacrifice for another. It's a love that places high value on the other person. Jesus emphasizes the infinite love the Father has for, for the Son and the Son for the Father. That's repeated over and over again. And so the Father glorifies, he loves the Son and glorifies the Son, honors the Son, the Son 
glorifies the Father, honors the Father. The Spirit honors and glorifies the Son and the Father. And you see this reciprocity in the Godhead that, that is informative, not only as to who God is, but perhaps who we are as well. The heart of Trinitarian life is found in the delightful, loving, self-giving of each person of the Godhead for the other. How many of you read Reeves? All right, read all of Reeves. Raise your hands. That's pretty good. How many read some of it? You know, like the introductory page or something, you know? That's really good. Reeves' book is a delight. And here is where he really camps is the mutual love within the Godhead, one for the other. Now, that's, a, that's a good book even to give to a non-Christian, I think. So get this. When Jesus beckons us to, instead of trying to save our soul, to lose it, when we are called to follow our Lord, take up our cross, it is then in losing our soul we save our soul. I think that as we see this reciprocal loving and self-giving in the Godhead, Jesus is asking us to do simply what God in the Godhead does a thousand times over, a million times over. It is by giving to the other that we are filled up with divine life. He invites us to experience life as the Trinity experiences life, at least in some analogous way. The lines aren't, aren't absolute, but they are similar. Well, if each member of the Trinity gives of himself to the other, then how are we to be imitators of God as beloved children? By sacrificing ourselves as well. There's only one place in all the Bible that we are told to be imitators of God. And that is in Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice back to God. We are called to love one another sacrificially. And of course, Ephesians 5 goes right on later on to talk about submitting to one another and then husband and wife and how we relate differently but yet each giving to the other. There's another major, major theme and that is perichoresis. How can one God be three persons? Remember Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father and, and, and Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This really unlocks as we walk through history and look back at the scriptures repeatedly. I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. This idea picked up by Gregory of Nazianzus and later Maximus the Confessor and some, it is a reciprocal indwelling or mutual inhabitation of each member of the Godhead with the others. And yet without confusion, of persons. And so you say, well, how can one person indwell another? I don't know. But, but each member of the Godhead does indwell the other. And it's said over and over again. And really, we experience that as well. When God comes into our life, we don't become God. When I look down and see Tyra, I don't call her Jesus because Jesus lives in her heart. We experience in a similar way, not identical, that we, are, we are structured, we are made in the image of God to be indwelled. And so John 17, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, 
may they also be in us, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me. Perichoresis. It's really a, a beautiful doctrine, and it explains how someone, if we are structured to be indwelled, we are never complete until our Lord lives in us. It also explains how a malignant spirit, an evil spirit, can usurp the place of God. That is, someone can be demon-possessed, which is a certainly biblical theme. And so we are designed to be indwelled, and that tells us more about who we are as persons. And frankly, I think it separates us from angels. There's no indication angels are indwelled by God. They're servants of God, but we have that higher place. The Lord became flesh. He became human and dwelled among us. So what do we see in John? Well, the Son and the Spirit were with God. They know and testify of one another. Each person seems to freely choose in relation and submission. Each person reflects self-rendering love. Each person indwells the other without confusion. And the Son and the Spirit come forth from the Father. There are eternal relational roles. Well, there's always much more to say. The eternal begottenness, the eternal procession. There are exciting things as we go deeper and deeper and don't understand it all. Yet by faith we walk, we trust the scriptures, and our Lord inhabits us. The Spirit gives understanding as we continue on. And that is my prayer for you as well. Well, I don't want to usurp the time of Aaron as he's coming, but let us close once again in prayer. Our God, we thank you that you are so generous. You are the loving God, and you've said you want to come right into our lives and make us like you are. And so, God, may we listen to your voice. May we experience your power in the Holy Spirit. May we be conformed to who you are as God, as our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that by becoming truly spiritual people. Thank you. We worship you in Jesus' name.